Welcome to On My Own Dime. I'm your host, Jason McCormack. This week, the conversation continues with Brooklyn-based music producer, Chris Camilleri. We're discussing the effect of growing up in a time when pensions were a foundational part of how people planned their life and careers. Particularly, how it influenced the way many freelancers operated in their formative years. We explore the idea of stewardship on social media, and Chris shows us that to have an optimistic outlook about the development of social media and the modern internet, we need to be good stewards of other people. There's something else that you mentioned at the, at the beginning, though, that I don't know, maybe we can get into as well. This idea of, oh, well, when I grow up, I'm going to go to school for this thing. I'm going to learn how to do this thing really well. And then somebody's going to give me a job. And if I'm the best at vocal editing, that's the work that they're going to keep giving me. And then I'm just going to work for that same company for 40 years and then retire. Right. And uh, that's a whole other thing that, yeah, that yeah we can talk I mean, about. unpack it because <laughs> I, I think the common thread across really our generation is that there were different expectations. For example, if your parents grew up at a time when companies provided pensions, they raised you with this background, this, this foundational idea that like you commit to a company and they take care of you. Like you do your work for them for life and they take care of you for life. And then this crazy thing happened where pensions started just dropping. Like even people who worked and earned their pensions were notified that they wouldn't be receiving it. Yeah. And so that just shattered this foundational idea of like, how do you provide for your family? Totally. And when you come up with that, but, but you also come up with the encouragement of like, chase your dreams and like do the work that you love. So you never really work a day in your life because you love it. And expectations on, you know, for my family, it's like going to call all of my, me and my brothers going to college was important. My parents didn't have the opportunity, but they worked hard to make sure it was provided for my brothers and I. So those, yeah. to me, it's those three things and the shattering of pieces of each of them as the economy changed really made it confusing when I was a young engineer that thought I knew how mm. things were going to go. And I thought I knew what was expected of me. And I just think I wasn't, uh, like I was not processing that that stuff could be wrong. Yeah. I just would just be like, well, that one didn't work out. And I would just go do the same thing again somewhere else. Right. Yeah. It's such a harsh truth of, I think, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to be selfish and say that this is true only for people like in our industry or even in the entertainment industry. I think it's much broader than that, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think it's true for many, if not most sort of millennials and anybody sort of younger than that as well, that um, our entire kind of worldview and certainly mine as well, like I I happen to grow up in a family where, um, you know, my parents had... My parents grew up in Europe. Um, my dad is in academia. He's he's a physician, and he's like at the very forefront of his 
specialty. Um, and so it was sort of expected that all the kids, you know, would, would go to college. But we also, you know, when you're a kid and you're growing up, and of course, like you said, uh, you're going to school where you're constantly chasing that grade, you know, or, or um, you know, school in, in and of itself is, is a, it's a meritocracy, right? It's like, if you, if you do better, you will do better, right? Um, it's a cheat, it's a metric. It's a clean metric. Exactly. And you don't have to calculate it. Yeah. It's, it's just, just given to you. Right. It's just, right, exactly. Everything is just laid, laid out. Um, and for so many people in generations before us, that's how life kind of was as well. It sort of matched up, right? The two things kind of worked in tandem. And so it's school kind of set you up for life in a successful way. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I definitely came in, into the world with that same kind of outlook where it was like, okay, I didn't know if I was necessarily going to work for the same company like my dad has for almost 40 years. But I thought, if I'm the best at what I do, the work will, will come. Like either a company's going to hire me, and if that company does another doesn't, then another will or whatever. Um, I'm still battling that mentality on a daily basis. Like you know, it's still challenging to 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 know that for us, it's not really about you know, it really is not about what you know or sort of how good you are or even how accomplished you are or whatever it's 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 just it's so much there's so many other things that you kind of have to be on top of like you know who you are out there in the world um and for a lot of us who are sort of entertainment facing um our personality and sort of what we're what we feel open enough to, to sort of share with the world through social media is a massive component of, you know, we like, we have to advertise ourselves. We have to be like a marketing person and a salesperson. And, you know, you know, there's just so many hats. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a rude awakening and it's something that I think, you know, it's like, because we're, we spent so many of our formative years, which is really when the brain is like establishing how the world works, right? We 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 spent so much time just knowing that if I'm the the best, if I can run the fastest, if, if I can work the hardest, whatever it is, then the world will just give things to me. Yeah, in other words, like your work will speak for itself. Right. But it it really it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of have to you have to have that and you have to speak for your work. Yeah. I'm sure you've heard the word entitlement kind of thrown around a lot. Um, maybe not at you, but at our yeah. generation, well, hum- like <laughs> as sure. a whole. And I always kind of resisted that for most of my life. But now, like more recently, I'm recognizing that in in a way that is a sense of entitlement, like Oh, well, I like my totally. work speaks for us. I already did the hard work. So I'm done. Like I'm checked out. I already earned it. So where's my, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where, where's my platinum record opportunity here? Cause I'm ready for it. That is a sense of entitlement. 
Right. But it's hard to see that when we have no idea how much work the person we're competing with put in. You never will understand like how much someone else has sacrificed because a lot of it's intangible um, or the difference in yeah. your level of discipline yeah. compared to the person next to you or the person across the country from you now, like whoever may be in consideration of the position or the opportunity with you, you might have the same level of discipline. Maybe they sacrificed more or maybe you sacrificed more, but they have more discipline or... I think in the ideal world, mm -hmm. like what you just described, it would just come down to a metric. Like, well, I got an A and he got an A minus. Sorry. Like <laughs> my turn. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I know I did. Yeah. That's, you know, I'm in my early thirties now and it's never too late, but it does feel too late to recognize that is what, to understand more of the picture of like what what was happening with the dynamics that were out of my control because of that dimension where you don't know what people have sacrificed. It can be difficult with social media, the way it's filtered or curated to see like, Oh, well this person's had just one success after the other and like one big opportunity after the other It's difficult not to be jealous and say like, well, let me think back about what did I do wrong? What did I do differently? And if you put it in the oh, context yeah. of the way that you described it, it's not always, and I mean, I've done, I've made tons of mistakes, but it's not always about like, what did you do wrong necessarily? You know, it's just, yeah. did you have, yeah. there's so many variables. Did you have the same opportunities? Did you have the personality oh, yeah. they were looking for? Did they make, did you give them the wrong impression exactly. without even knowing it? Yeah. Sure. And I mean, yeah. like I said, I've made tons of mistakes, yeah. but it's difficult not to reflect back on them. I'm bringing this up because I think in all creative fields, people do this, the, the rumination of like, or, or that feeling of like, ah, I could have been a contender. Like maybe you were, maybe it's not right. that you weren't a contender, but it's just hard when you're in it to see like, what's not working. To what's see. not, what's, yeah. what's the one reason right. that this didn't land for me or whatever. Yeah. That's a constant I think as a creative person, that's a constant thing. And I, I think to some degree it's healthy, right? And it's and it's maybe something that our, the sort of natural groundwork that we have that I don't want to call baby boomers the most entitled or to the most entitled generation, but they laid sort of the ground. And, and of course, everything that we kind of came up in maybe established an expectation from the world that like, I am going to have that pension or I am going to get that 401k from a company. And so let me just be really good. Let me get really good at this thing. Um, and I think, you know, there's something beautiful about having a world where we, we need to know what we're putting out there in a deeper way, in a more personal way. And it's more imperative for us to connect with people and to be more empathetic and to be better stewards of other people, you know? Um, I feel like that's maybe, you know, a brighter and, and sort of more encouraging way that I try to... That's to, possibly to the it. most um, optimistic outlook I've come across <laughs> in terms of just like, what is social media and what's the good that it can bring us? But I like that you yeah. use the word stewardship like being better stewards of other people because basically like any, like pick a platform, pick a profile, 
that's somebody's narrative essentially. Mm. And I think it does. I think stewardship is the right word because you may know just a in person, like let's say I work in a shop and someone seems very closed off and I don't feel like it's my responsibility to like pry or kind of figure them out or get to know them. I think what social media does is gives me an avenue and this is me being optimistic, which I have to try for, um, <laughs> but it yeah, gives, gives me, me an avenue to kind of see that person's narrative and it gives them the, I guess the opportunity or the, it makes it so they don't have to figure out their narrative and like put themselves on the spot in person but they have their narrative that's been built on their social media profile. When I go there, I can maybe see that they've been through a couple things and it might help me with some context to be like, oh, that's why this person's closed off and that's okay. Instead of, I think, yeah, if you, if you aren't a good steward of the people around you, I think you might just kind of write them off and not, not give them yeah. the chance to, to thrive in that. Like for me, it, it can be difficult because we transfer a lot into different shops and work with a lot of different people. And ideally you want everyone to like to coming to work, to like to come to work, but that can be difficult because there's a lot of different personalities. And if one thrives, sometimes that necessarily means that someone else isn't. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's because of the shifting attention around people's performance, but there's, again, tons of variables, but it gives you that avenue to kind of look at another dimension of, of the person and decide like, oh, maybe they just need a break. Maybe I just cut them some slack. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never really thought of that, but like, yeah, just the, the idea of, and I mean, social media can be, as we all know, it can be really uh, a drain and it can be a really negative place and it can just be tough to to sort of consume sometimes because it does make you it can it has the ability very easily to make you sort of question your own success in whatever metric you want to talk about whether it's your attractiveness or your level of you know wealth or your your ability to achieve but i think yeah it also just the ability to sort of lurk or drop into somebody's life and kind of see what they're up to can inform us, you know, and can, can kind of let us be more connected to a greater number of people. Whereas, you know, in times before social media, it would be more likely that, like you said, like in, in the shop you're working in or whatever, like you just kind of stay in your lane, you know? Um, and I think for a lot of our parents, that was true. You know, maybe they would have like a couple friends at work, but for the most part, you know, unless you were working directly with another person you just kind of like stick to yourself i guess and it was all about your relationship to the company you know as opposed to nowadays it's it's much more about your your general relationship to the world or to if you want to break it down a little bit to a community whether it's like you know for me musicians in new york city let's just say or if you want to even break it down further musicians in brooklyn you know, or, you know, whatever you, there's, there's communities large and small that you can kind of build that 
could have never existed before. And so, yeah. I think as a culture, we're still struggling to like see how this comes together. But the most confusing and interesting thing I came across in terms of like culture and society interfacing with modern technology is the term glocal or like you probably, or there's been, I think there's an advertising campaign or something that says like, think globally, act locally. And it's this idea of like, yes, global is great. It's great for industry. It's great for growth, but it also is like trampling local, everything small, everything local. So it's like, I don't think we've packaged that message in a way that anybody understands yet. But there's something there that's like the mis- <laughs> it's like a missing element of keeping a local small community, like for example, Brooklyn musicians, thriving and relevant, and, and somehow engaging the global the global community of musicians in the context of being a, a you know maybe maybe like a hipster indie rock band from Brooklyn, like that's your identity and you, you have your local network and stuff, but be relevant globally too. I think there's still something missing yeah, there in yeah. the way that the, that, that that message or that idea is delivered. You're a really smart guy. I wish. That- <laughs> Thanks. I think that's, no, that's, that's a really, that's a great, that's a really great, observation uh that i had not come to and i think you know as you were kind of describing it all of these brands that i'm really passionate about that are here in new york um i feel like are doing that really well you know there's like um there's a tea company for example here called kettle tea that that was founded by a a high school friend of mine actually and they do such a beautiful job of first sort of just having an identity as you put it you know that is brooklyn right they have a location they have a look they have you know everything sort of about their brand exists inside and also because of their brooklyn identity but it also translates really well to their broader more global outreach and it and by global you can define that as well, they also want to provide their, you know, their wares, so to speak, for shops, restaurants, etc. in New York City, but then also beyond that, you know, and and sh- and ship they ship internationally basically. So Right, their goal is the complete opposite of like high fashion exclusivity. Their their goal yeah. is not exclusivity, it's inclusivity. It's inclusivity but without losing what they've built, their identity, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And uh, yeah, I mean, I could I could name a bunch of other, you know, I'm not trying to like name drop, but like, I think that's a really, that's a really pertinent, I don't even want to call it like marketing tactic, but it's, it's even, it's bigger than that. It has to do with sort of how you sort of self define and identify um, as, as a person or even as a brand or a company or whatever it is uh, in this day and age. Um to have that kind of local mentality and that local outreach, but then make it um, make yourself accessible to to a broader swath of of people. Yeah, and I think what made you stop at the word tactic 
and say like, it's not a tactic. I think that's, is it authentic? Are they what they say they are? It's certainly something you can use as a tactic, but when some, when something is what it says it is, the word tactic just doesn't fit. It doesn't, uh, yeah, it's not the right word. Yeah. And that's where, that's where some of the negative sides of social media can co- come into play for me, where <laughs> I see, I think when people implement it as a tactic, then you have this huge digital atmosphere of like all of these brand narratives and identities. And now you're trying to figure out like, which one of these is real? <laughs> like which, which one of these really did what they're saying or, and supports who they say they support. Um, but that's not a bad thing. It just means that everyone's trying to do it as well as the, the example that you're describing. Right. Yeah. And you're totally right. Like when authenticity is there, tactics fail. They, they fall away. They, they're just not necessary. Right. And there's so many social media accounts where you can just see that they're like glomming onto somebody else's success and making all of their design choices and all of their sort of outreach model another another company or or some you know some other pre-existing success story right it becomes so transparent i think if you if you know enough about whatever that thing is to see when it's tactics versus authenticity yeah i'll i'll bring this back to the world of music so last year i decided i was going to spend the year working on how to do sync like how to get music into commercial use opportunities and i learned a lot quick like quickly but i had you know my expectation of a timeline was completely unrealistic but i didn't know that when i set out but you're reminding me of this kind of reverse engineering of music and i don't necessarily think there's something inherently wrong with it but for me it brings up the question that we're discussing of like authenticity. Not if you're a music producer. I don't think it applies there. But I I primarily started as a songwriter, not a music producer. I just became mm-hmm. fascinated with all things recording, all microphones, all all preamps, like all of that stuff. From the mindset of a songwriter reverse engineering somebody else's song is not authentic yeah right but from the mind of a music producer i don't even know where that element if it even has a place in the mind of in the mentality of a music producer like it's a sensible approach like this company liked this genre i have the skills to pick apart these elements from the mix i have the tools to create similar elements and a similar structure like this is what I do. I produce music. Um, or if you are a mixing engineer, like you may use the same types of templates as another producer or another mix engineer. Um, so taking that year to try to figure out like, maybe this is some kind of work I could do, stay in, stay in music and be able to do it in a more flexible way that I need. Um, but coming at it with a different, I think a lot of people in the group were music producers. And so I was having a a different perspective a little bit where 
even just using a template kind of makes me feel like that's not, that's not good because then it's not a brand new original thing, <laughs> but it's really about workflow if you're thinking as a music producer. So right. it was an interesting journey. Yeah. And uh, I'm still on it. Yeah. I'm just kind of changing, fine tuning the direction a little bit as I go and definitely being more realistic with time expectations sure. since I work full time. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it certainly applies to other dimensions of the world marketing at large for sure You're right but it also applies specifically to each totally each creative endeavor in different industries yeah i think so i mean i and i i i very much feel like for music producers and just creators in general you know we were talking about accessibility before and i think part of that definitely dips into this conversation of authenticity because at our disposal now as music producers musicians composers whatever We've got so many tools that we didn't have before that, you know, when when you think about the days of yore, right, where like, if you were a musician, anything that you wanted to put down onto tape or digital, whatever it was, you had to go into a studio and record it for the first time right there on the spot, right? Now, you know, I'm not going to go over the whole history, but now you've got things like Splice. Yeah right? Where it's, you get like producer packs from artists, producers, famous people, whatever, where it's like, oh, here's a little guitar loop that I composed just for you. And it's like, okay, how many hundreds of kids are using that guitar loop out there making their original song that now is the same guitar loop (laughs) that some other, you know, and that just, okay, on on one hand wow that's kind of cool but on the other hand it's like that there's no way that would have happened before and that's why we we had so many maybe more interesting maybe more original at the very least ideas right yeah i see genres like evolving as a single entity now because there's so many similar elements like across the whole like across everyone involved in that genre like producers, right. musicians, in, like the individual yeah. instrumentalists. Yeah. And so so I've always liked Native Instruments as a company. I, I like that they engineered software with a hardware controller. Now, so I, I've had an idea to, I like lo-fi music. It's just a no pressure thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, much less stressful than like producing a song or writing a song. And so I thought like, maybe I'll do that because I can do more of them because I'm less attached to each one. What they do is what you described, right? right? They've got the software, the hardware controller and the sample packs. So how many people <laughs> have put out an EP with the samples I'm using? <laughs> like, and now it's not that it's horrible. Like we're all you know, let's just call it a hundred people. Well, it's a hundred interpretations of what to do with those 16 sounds or if, you know, I'll just keep it at, keep it simple. Mm-hmm. 16 sounds on the drum pad. That's cool. But it's cool in the sense of like, what can you do with this? Not really. Right. Uh, how much can you make with this? How much it definitely financially, because <laughs> the other element is that all of those samples, the, the, user agreement the end user agreement is you can you you can release these you can copyright this music that whatever you make with it is yours we just ask that you don't resell right it's illegal to resell the sample pack right right. or their 
the way they deliver it, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so if, for example, one of my lo-fi songs from an EP I did last year gets picked up or someone wants to use it, great. What could I reasonably expect in return if maybe a hundred other people have reinterpreted that sample pack, <laughs> you know, versus like an, an exclusively written or delivered, maybe it wasn't written for the project, but it was delivered just to that project. And they said like, I want this just for us. Mm-hmm. That I, I feel like you could reasonably just at the baseline charge more for something that's not available anywhere else. Yeah. But, and then in sync too, like there's, contracts and licensing and you can't just uh like if i were to release something you know all this stuff but not everybody listening does but if you were to release something and then offer it it's less valuable because it's already out there and if it's exclusive to right you know maybe you know the the director maybe it's a student director that you know if it's exclusive to his film great he doesn't have to worry about any kind of Mm-hmm. legal um problems or ambiguities mm-hmm. it's his it's his you made it for him you gave it to him you sold right. it to him yeah but if it was previously released then that immediately creates a hesitancy especially like the higher um like the more professional the more established a company or the person is the more likely they're they've had a bad experience where they're going to say like no i'm looking for something that's just for me yeah. That I want to own. Yeah. And I think, you know, you hit on something that I think probably remains true and, and or will remain true, which is there is something of a, a prestige or there is value to exclusivity, right? You know, it's like I, I had a conversation with a client a couple weeks back and we haven't had the benefit of working in, in person at all for obvious reasons. And so we were kind of doing a little Zoom call where I was casting my my Pro Tools session to her. And she said, you know, we just kind of got on the topic of how I was building the track, you know, and she was like, just really happy with it. And like, man, nobody else has, has uh, you know, a few other producers had worked on this particular song for her and she wasn't happy with it. And she was she was remarking and like, talking about how tailored to the song the sounds that I was using were and this isn't like this isn't meant to like you know talk myself up or anything it's just because we're on the topic she's like there's a, there's something missing in this part can you do you want to just like open splice or you know you know play some loops for me then maybe we can throw something down and I was like well I don't I don't use that stuff and she was just kind of like taken aback for a second because there's so much it's so prevalent now and and you know we were talking earlier about like just the accessibility and how many people are now capable you know of of doing of creating something right having something that is super tailored like when she heard from me that like everything that she heard in the music I had actually played myself like on a guitar or you know, put down the chords myself and, and weren't grabbing them from a pre like a stock MIDI pack, you know, where it was like, oh, here's, here's some chord structures that you could potentially, you know, sing over. Like these will fit anywhere. These will fit anywhere. Like one, four, five, like chords, you know, whatever, whatever. I was like, no, like I, I played all of these parts and she's like, oh, well 
that's why this works so well, you know, like, and it just, it's, it seemed like such an obvious thing, but also not, you know, in, in, in one breath, you know, um, but I think, you know, it speaks to just how, how much, uh, is being created out there and how much can be, but, but at the same time, I still believe that the stuff that, that has more of a lasting impact and maybe hopefully the stuff that rises to the top, you know, that's not always true, but hopefully the stuff that grabs people and exists uh, in a time and a place and, and sort of like has more of an identity, you know, to and an authenticity to go back to, to what we were talking about before is stuff that is handmade, right? Um, and is exclusive right is made for that one purpose and for that purpose only right yeah it's interesting to hear the disconnect where like this is how you work this is how you've always worked and she was like but you're a but you're uh you're an engineer you're a music producer and an engineer so like what are you talking about you don't use splice <laughs> and yeah. you're like that's just not it's just not no my, yeah <laughs> i just don't do that that's not how i do that and it's cool that she immediately identified it as like, oh, that's why I wasn't working with anybody else. Yeah. Like that's what they were, that's what everyone else was doing. Yeah. And that's, and yours, it's working with you. I'm happy with what you've done to my work. And that's why. Yeah. Because it didn't have to go that way either. No. You know, she could have, she could have also, you, you take a little bit of a risk there, right? Like sure. She could have heard that and been like, well, this guy's not really professional. He doesn't know <laughs> what he's doing. Now, that might indicate that she's, or you're, you know, this is hypothetical. It might indicate that the client's maybe more closed-minded and you don't want to work with them in the sure. future. But yeah. it's great that it played out the way that it, the good way for you. I'm sure you probably still work with her, right? I'm still, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, in this day and age, uh, maybe it's because I'm, in my late thirties and I, I don't want to pretend anymore who I am or who I'm not. I don't really hesitate just putting myself out there and saying like, all right, this is, this is what I do. This is what I don't do. I'm good at this. I'm, I'm not going to claim that I can do this thing, you know, whatever. Um, I, I just think it, it makes the conversations clearer. It draws lines, I think, and, and drawing lines is, is good. I want to change gears and have a little bit of story time. Okay. Let's do it. I guess a good place to start would be you were saying that your parents, because of their education, because of their trajectory, there were built-in expectations that you would kind of like landmarks or rites of passage that you were going to go through. And it sounds like academia was, was the prevalent one. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about like you know, how did you look at your college prospects out of high school and kind of take us through? Yeah, um, sure. So let's, let's rewind. Um, so I, yeah, I was, I was pretty good in school, like, you know, high school, good student, straight A kind of student. So when it came time for college, yeah, the, the, the sort of prevailing philosophy in my family was open, open the biggest door that you can find, you know, like whatever's presented to you, go for it, you know? Uh, and so I, I, I shot for the stars, you know, I went to the best college that I could, 
that I got into. My dad is a doctor. He set me up with lots of opportunities. Just grow- I grew up in a, a relatively small town of like 100,000 people in Minnesota that had a very famous medical facility center called the Mayo Clinic. And so throughout high school and college, I was like spending all of my summers working in a science lab. So that was kind of one very obvious path that I was potentially going to go down. Throughout college, I was studying all of the pre-med sciences, among other things. And, but like couldn't shake the music bug. You know, I was in bands and stuff in high school and, and college and ultimately just chose that path, you know. And so when I graduated with, with my big bad BA in music, I sort of like was like, oh shit, what do I do now? And of course, the obvious answer was, well, academia seems to have served us all well, so let's keep doing that. So I moved to New York and went to NYU and did a master's degree in music technology. As you know, there are not that many people who are music producers, probably, or (laughs) musicians in general who have master's degrees. Um, No, I mean... That's kind of laughable. I mean, you're laughing as you say it. It's laughable to expect, you know, if you're like an indie songwriter or what have you, to be like, you have your master's, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, well, that's an expectation, right? But I thought, you know, of course, like, well, let me open as many doors as I can, you know, and like, uh, let me be the best. Let me be the most knowledgeable person out there in this field. And naturally, I will be, uh, that will open the doors for me and get me jobs. People will find me. People will find me. The money will come, you know? (laughs) And so, um, but that said, my sort of just sheer desire to be in the studio setting, which I had fallen in love with, madly in love with in college and and high school, just from like, you know, being in bands and, and getting to record and gave me the good sense to stick myself in a studio setting as well. So, I was basically working full-time in various studios while I was in my, both in college, but then also um, in, when I was doing my my master's at NYU. So I was pulling like crazy hours. You know, I would go to class from like nine to one or two and then go to the studio afterwards. Uh, And this is, this is pre-Dubway days. Um... I was interning for uh, a producer named Chris Griffin, uh, who was working out at this place called the Cutting Room Studios, which is still there. Um, so I was just like, you know, burning the midnight oil and learning all all the, you know, just sitting sitting in the back of Chris's room, watching him mix all day, you know. And so fortunately, I made, I think, some good choices while I was also pursuing a master's degree. And ended up uh, taking on an internship at Dubway in my very last semester of my master's program. Um, and they offered me a, an assistantship job like days after I graduated. So I really lucked out. And at that point, you know, there were a few little breadcrumbs that I could kind of, you know, string together. And a little bit of help from my parents definitely uh, was at play as well, just to kind of be able to, to pay rent from one month to the next. Um, and yeah, that's kind of where 
the career, I guess, sort of started going up. And then it was, of course, and continues to be a complete roller coaster. That's it for this episode. Come on back next week as we continue the conversation about the nature of freelance work, navigating instability, and the magic of recording studios. Thanks for joining me and have a great week out there on planet Earth.